Our sermon this morning is titled, The Good Shepherd Unveiled. In preparation for that, he's asked that I read from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time, until that time she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock. And the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Good morning. If you are a student of history, you may be familiar with the little town that Tom and I grew up in, Seville, Ohio. How many of you have heard of Seville, Ohio? Maybe besides Todd and I being from there. A few of you. All right. So Alfalfa and the Little Rascals sang about the bar of Seville. Now do you remember Seville? No, it's not the same Seville. But um, you might have heard of the giants of Seville. Ring a bell, right? Uh, Captain Martin Van Buren Bates and his wife, Anna Swan Bates, were residents of Seville, Ohio, after the Civil War. He was actually a Confederate captain. Uh, he was from Kentucky, and she was from Canada. But they met uh, during that period, and he retired and built a home fit for him and his wife in Seville, Ohio. Now that mansion, uh, I understand, has been torn down since, but they did keep some of the features of it. The doors, the front doors are still there, so if you drive by on I think it's Center Street. I can't remember which street, Seville Road. When you're coming into town and you see that house, you can see the nine-foot doors, the archways, still there in the same location. But uh, they're an interesting couple. They actually traveled a lot uh, in their retirement, made a lot of money um, in the circus and in other ways that people wanted to meet them and see them. Here you see him pictured on the right with a man from Medina, Ohio, that was four foot tall. And so he is almost literally twice as tall as this man in Medina. They had some fun with it, didn't they? There's a lot of pictures of him and his wife uh, with an average-sized man, as they put in the caption, standing next to him. And so we have giants from Seville. We talk about them in the Bible all the time, and a lot of times young people are surprised when I, when I tell them that, you know, giants, uh, it's not something that you really have to... Um, stretch your imagination to believe. We have them walking around today still. We call it giantism, if it's genetic, in fact. And uh, there were a couple in Seville. But uh, today we're going to look at a contemporary of Isaiah. His name is Micah. Micah prophesied about a giant who would come from a small town, about the size of Seville back in the day. And uh, like Isaiah, 
he witnessed through his ministry the point in which the northern kingdom was led away by Assyria captive. He witnessed it. Isaiah did too. They were working with the southern kingdom at that time, but they actually were alive and saw this dismantling of the north and worked right on through the kings of Judah up to Hezekiah's reign. And it was in the fifth year of Hezekiah, king of Judah, that the north was taken away. And so they actually uh, had much to say uh, toward the, the northern kingdom before their captivity, but they both were sent primarily to the southern kingdom, and they were constantly saying, look at, the, uh, look at your brethren to the north, you know, it's going to happen to you like, it, like it's happened to them. In fact, Mike is so confident about it, as is Isaiah, that the southern kingdom will also become disobedient, that they actually foretell of the exile of the southern kingdom into the hands of Babylon by name in the book of Micah and in Isaiah. And they go further than that. They tell of the return from captivity. And we talked about that last week, about how strange that would be in your ears if someone got up and told you that America was going to be captured, we were all going to be exiled in different parts of the world, but we would be brought back here and become a great nation, and then a great one would rule over us. I mean, you're, you're stuck at the first point, aren't you? Really. I mean, you're kind of stuck at, wait a minute, whoa, back up, back up. And so this must have been the, the uh, type of difficulty that these preachers had, especially when people didn't respect their credibility, when they didn't want to hear what God had to say. And so this is why so many of them were persecuted and uh, martyred uh, for their preaching. But he does tell of a giant that was greater than seven foot eight inches tall, and greater than Anna, seven foot eight inches tall. In fact, the shadow of this giant We'll see in this uh, text that was read, as we break it down, casts a shadow that covers the whole earth. The ruler from Bethlehem, that's who we're dealing with. A great shepherd from a small town. I'm using words from Micah's prophecy. You've heard of the phrase, a good shepherd, probably. Micah calls him great. And he's from this small town. Let's talk about it. Go to Micah chapter 5. We're just going to camp out here, so uh, open up to Micah 5. If it takes you 15 minutes to find Micah, I'll still be there in Micah. We're just not going to go very far here. In fact, I'm still finding it myself. Look at verse 2 with me. Let's reread it together. Then these things are going to happen. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, you are one of the smaller clans, he's saying. An unlikely place. Yet, out of you shall come forth to me the one who ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In conjunction with Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14 of his book, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew, when he quotes Isaiah, says is translated God with us. In conjunction with that, 
Micah also tells of this Emmanuel, although he doesn't call him Emmanuel by name. Rather, he points out, though, that he would be born among men, that, that an eternal being would be born among men. And so let's look at a few details about this prophecy and why it's a powerful persuasion for us today toward faith in God through Christ. This is going to have a faith-building effect on us, I hope. And uh, I believe that if that happens, that will necessarily change the way we view our lives. It will enhance the way we live our lives. And that is the intended result of the preaching of these prophets and the prophecies. There were two Bethlehems. That made this a special warning when he said, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah. You see, there was a Bethlehem that was seven miles northeast of Nazareth. And it was mentioned in uh, Joshua, about uh, chapter 19, verse 15. That Bethlehem is mentioned among the cities. That would be territory of the tribe of Zebulun. So we know it's, it's the one up to the north. But Bethlehem Ephratah was a reference to the latter, which was seven miles south of Jerusalem. I enjoyed reading some commentaries that were written a long time ago by Jews who said that uh, Bethlehem Ephratah was two hours south of Jerusalem. And I went, oh, now are we talking about another one? And I forgot. We're talking foot travel. It's two hours. And I thought, now how long does it take me to walk around Chestnut Park? Remember? It's about two hours, you know? And so just at a leisurely pace, it's two-hour walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and that's the one that he pointed out here. It's the one in which Rachel, upon approaching it, gave birth to Benjamin, but died in childbirth. And they buried her there in Bethlehem. And you'll remember perhaps when Herod, which we'll touch on a little more in a minute, when Herod uh, slaughtered all the children as he sought out the Christ that were two years old and under, that Matthew quoted from, uh, actually from uh, the Psalms, that, he, that Rachel was weeping for her children. And so as they were put into the ground, Rachel, who was also buried, there was weeping for her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren who were being murdered. And so this is the same place. I mean, this is added to make sure that people knew specifically which little village that this one whom he's going to talk about in more detail is going to come from. So I hope you'll enjoy, as we go through the year and we talk about these prophecies, I can't talk about all of them. There's over 300 just pertaining to Jesus. And there's over 800 prophecies that are fulfilled in the New Testament. But as we talk about these, you'll notice more and more detail being revealed. Now we're talking about the village in which he'll be born. We're not just talking about one will be born of the seed of a woman who will crush Satan's head. Now we're talking about he's coming from Bethlehem, okay? So I hope you'll uh, grasp that uh, specificity of these prophets, especially as there are other um, self-proclaimed prophets throughout the world who have, um, by their own powers, tried to predict future events. You have to also understand that, that's, that this means that this little village will still be little over 700 years later. 
First of all, it has to exist 700 years later. Second of all, he's saying it's still going to be a small village. Third of all, he's also telling them we're going to be exiled to Babylon in the previous chapter. And then we're going to come back and reestablish this territory. So all of this is foretold. And this is bringing out the power of this prophecy and convincing the Jews then, and hopefully we Gentiles, and if there be any Jews among us, to Christ today. The wise man interpreted this passage correctly to mean this small town. Uh, hold your finger in Micah and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And you'll see how the people in Jesus' day, Jews and Gentiles, they're wise men because they were believers in the one true God. And so in Luke chapter 2, we read, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So out went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, which was just seven miles south of that in Bethlehem, I imagine, and into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while he was there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. All right. So, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And he actually, his parents weren't even living there at the time. Add this detail into it. That the prophet, through the Spirit of God, of course, foresaw the political and social events surrounding the time when his son would be born. And this is just such the case that they made a trip to go register and she gave birth while they were in Bethlehem. So it wasn't something that could be foreseen very easily at all, even through this uh, family. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, the first six verses. All this, you'll notice, is within pages of Micah's book in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 2, the first six verses picks up now that Jesus was born. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, notice there it says of Judea, specifying between the two Bethlehems. In the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, where do you think they looked? They, they opened up the scrolls to Micah's prophecy. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, 
when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And when you jump over to verse 16, after Herod was enraged because the wise men did not tell him where the baby was, but left to go home, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So they had actually narrowed it down to the, the date when Jesus was born, or, or close, and Herod said, we're just going to round it off, all the males two years old and under. And in the following verses is where you see a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. That's because Rachel was buried there in that same town, metaphorically uh, describing uh, the uh, anguish that they were going through. And so, Herod is uh, provoked, to be sure, because, let me catch up with my slides here, because the one to be ruler of Israel was reported to be born in the town that he was governing. This is a reference to an anticipated ruler also, an appointed ruler, and we'll see an anointed ruler, which is where the term Messiah comes from, anointed one of God, one anointed of God. And he will serve God's purpose. He is going to be the ruler of Israel, and he will come forth to me. Do you see that? That's important. God is speaking. Micah is quoting God saying, Out of you shall come forth one born to me for my purposes. And the idea of being born there, or, or excuse me, of, of coming forth there, I thought was having to do with birth, but it actually is reference to bursting forth as water would burst forth out of a spring. And it's the same usage as when Moses struck the rock and water came forth out of the spring. It's the idea that, that the Christ would spring forth out of this town to his Father to serve him in his eternal purposes. But the coming child, as it turns out, was, would not pose a threat to Herod's rule. In fact, Herod went to all that trouble and all that evil, which was not beside his character to do so, and then he died just a short time after that in Jericho. And uh, a son began to rule in that Herod dynasty. And so, Jesus, with his mother and father, shall I say, Joseph are in Egypt at this time, then awaiting the call out of Egypt to come back as Hosea the prophet foretold. His going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Hmm. When you see that word everlasting, it can have a reference to just uh, a finite period in the future. But it also has reference to eternity. And in this case, it's a reference to eternity. And what's more, it includes the past, present, and future. This one to come forth out of Bethlehem will be one who was in existence before he was born or would be born in Bethlehem. He'll come forth out of Bethlehem 
but he will have already existed for eternity. And we are given an eternal nature. When you and I were conceived in the womb, we were given a spirit that will live eternally. Live in what sense? Well, you understand that I don't mean everyone's going to live in heaven with God for eternity, but there will be a consciousness of your spirit eternally. And we know that when we're speaking of the afterlife, or when Christ comes again, I should say, and the judgment day uh, takes place, that we will be eternally uh, in a state of peace and rest with God, or we will be eternally in a state of torment. And so our own being refers to a present tense, we are now in existence, and we will have a state of existence into the future indefinitely. But with God, what separates him is, as uh, Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the heavens were brought forth, or Adam had formed the earth or the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the, the nature of God. He always has been. He is the uncaused first cause, if you will. And he is the, in terms of logic uh, or philosophy, they say, the absolutely necessary being. All things here are an effect of something. You either have to say, therefore, there was always a cause and effect in existence into eternity beforehand, or there had to be a first cause. Or even science itself says there was a beginning to the universe. Even unbelievers, evolutionists, etc., will say that there was a point in time which this stuff sprang forth, if you will, exploded into existence. But it does not deal with the eternal nature of this first cause. It does not deal with that. We have to at some point say, what was there beforehand to begin this, whether you think it's a Big Bang or a creation process? John introduces it in this way. In the beginning was, already in existence, the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, or without him nothing was made that was made. And then in John 1.14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word who was in the beginning with God, who through all things were created, became flesh and dwelt among us. And here Micah has already revealed that. Isaiah has already revealed that. And so you see in the Old Testament these uh, prophecies of Jesus Christ coming to earth. It should have been no surprise when Jesus made the statement, except that they didn't want to accept that it was him. When he said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now if they had recognized these prophecies and the signs of his coming and the circumstances of his birth and his life and his ministry and the fulfillment of prophecy, they would have been able to accept that. Not many did. Not many did. It was too much for them to think that God was standing before them in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Is it too much for you? <laughs> That's a question that I'd put forth for you. Is it too much? It might be too much to mentally wrap mind around how all that happened. But is, it, but is there not enough evidence to accept him? I believe we're looking at some of the most powerful evidence right now. So, we see. I got something on my screen that you don't see. That's good. We see also in the next couple of verses an introduction not only to who he is, but to his ministry. Now watch this. In Micah 5, 3 through the first part of verse 5, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is a lover has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now that bears a lot of commentary. I'll give you a little. And he shall stand and feed his flock. Now that doesn't take a rocket scientist, does it? He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Here we have his ministry described, and from now on, including the next couple of weeks as we go back to Isaiah, in the latter half of his book, you're going to see specific details of his work when he comes, by which men ought to be able to identify him. But here, this is a reference, I believe, uh, this birth, this labor and birth to their time in the previous chapter in Babylon, which is described in that chapter as a woman in labor to them. It's going to be painful. <laughs> and it's not going to be a matter of hours, which seems like an eternity to mothers who are laboring to bring forth children. It's going to be 70 years of agony. And he says, finally... Babylon, I believe, will give birth and they will return. The remnant will return to their brethren, the children of Israel. I believe that's a reference to what we're going to study in the next couple of months, to the return from the exile and the rebuilding of the temple and of Jerusalem and the making ready for Christ to come. All right, that's the short commentary on that verse. I really want to spend a moment yet with this idea of the shepherd reference. He's described as a shepherd. Now I want you to think about David, who is a great shepherd, born in Bethlehem, and anointed a mighty king. Just so, the son of David, Jesus the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem and become what Micah calls here a great shepherd. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and a mighty king over all the nations of men, the ruler of Israel. By using this idea, God has made his son to stand strong and have a great presence in the world. It is by that empty tomb that God has placed his stamp of authority, of credibility, of power, of promise, that resurrection is what Jesus is standing on here and we build our church on the fact that I am the Son of God and that I will rise again on the third day. You and I only have credibility in this earth if Jesus rose from the dead. 
1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, we did not ask, we're still in our sins, and we're ashamed and most pitiable because we believe in a resurrection of the dead, which cannot happen by mere men's power. But he said, he did raise from the dead, and therefore, the gospel message is preached to you that you can receive this same power to remove your sins and to awaken your dead body from sin to everlasting life. David stands strong as a mighty king who would stand, as a shepherd who is unmovable, as a shepherd who is unchanging. He's not a holy unholy, he's not a fleeing, he's not hiding when the danger comes around. He's a shepherd like David. Think of the typology here again. Born in Bethlehem, becomes a shepherd. Somehow he's anointed king, or unlikely, unlikely king. So is Jesus Christ. Nobody would have picked him. And yet David knew when danger came upon his flock. You remember what he told Saul when he said, I'm going to fight this giant? He said, when a bear came along and took one of the lambs from the flock, I went after it and stuck it and retrieved the lamb from its mouth. And a lion, I would catch it by its beard and slay it with my bare hands. Don't forget that when you're applying this shepherd from Bethlehem and how he stands strong and feeds his sheep. Nobody's going to come in and snatch them from his hand. John chapter 10, we'll see that. Let's, in fact, let's just go to that right now. Flip to John 10, I want you to see that verse. John chapter 10. In the first verse he says, what did I want to read to you? With you. With John 10, 1. I guess I have a slide for this, maybe. enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, but the same as a thief and a robber. I will go, verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He'll shepherd the sheep. He'll go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, think about Micah 5.2, out of Bethlehem shall come forth one to me. I will make him a ruler. My father has given to me, he says, all of these are less greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. A sheep that believes in me cannot be snatched out of my hand. A sheep that comes to me cannot be snatched out of my Father's hand. And now in Micah 6.8, we see what sheep know about the shepherd. Maybe you remember Nelson referring to shepherding and describing to you the situation how, uh, as he had a lot of experience from his childhood with sheep and shepherding in uh, Beaumont County, I believe. And so he described how there could be multiple shepherds that would bring their flocks to him and into a sheepfold. 
But what I have is I have not my sheep in my house. They all look like sheep, and I'm not allowed to be around them unless I say, God will raise them up. He who call, and the ones who recognize his voice will come to him. So all the shepherds would call, and the sheep would go, in other words. And this is the illustration that Jesus is pointing out here. He says, if you know who the shepherd is, you'll be able to recognize his voice and his only. Now anyone else is, is, is after something that's not good. It's probably your fault. <laughs> they're stealing, they're robbing, they're coming in through some back door of the gospel, which is not another gospel. And he said, his right is required of the whole sheep. Micah 6, 8. To do justly. He's already said all this. To do justly, to love mercy, or in your self translations may say to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Quickly. The idea of to do justly is that we would see men as equals. All created beings, and that we would treat men fairly. Each one of you show no partiality toward man for any reason, just like God does not show partiality toward man. God wants you to see human beings like he sees them and values them. The second thing, to love mercy. Just like we are valued the way God shows mercy to us, we are then to receive that and turn and give that mercy to others. This is a powerful word in the Hebrew to say, and it refers to God's covenant loyalty that he made a promise to forgive and he will forgive. And he turns, and we see also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying, For if you forgive men their trespasses, so will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. You're right, it's a powerful word. But the amount of mercy that you and I receive on the judgment day has to do with whether or not we will love mercy and show mercy or love to show mercy toward other men. Finally, the attitude of the fear of God. This is the idea that love is coming to and losing, uh, coming to God and losing Him on uh, some daily or weekly or annual basis. You check in, you say hi, you leave. This is the idea that you are walking, communing, and talking with God as if someone else is walking from God and then you're talking. This is what God has taught his people a covenant relationship is. This is what he's desired. Not perfection, devotion. That we would humbly do good, as he says, as I've expounded in the past, believe him and realize our relation to him, our need for him, and be able to humbly uh, accept our role as created beings, not the creator, and recognize him as our God, and listen to his voice. That's all wrapped up in this. And so we see today that there's a, there's a ruler coming out of Bethlehem. He's going to rule in shepherd-like fashion, and there's a requirement for sheep. There's a requirement for us to live daily by faith in this shepherd and putting our trust in him. He's alive and well. Uh, as sure as we are standing or sitting here today, the shepherd of Bethlehem is alive and well and standing strong, and he is unchanging in a world that's marked and characterized by constant change. Not all of which is good, right? And he is unchanging. 
Your peace, your peace, the peace that you really want, is not found in moralism. It's not found in religiosity. It's found in Him. He shall be peace. The person of Christ is peace. Therein lies the difference between being an avid, quote-unquote, churchgoer and a faithful Christian who worships together with the saints of the Lord in Christ. Therein lies the difference. And so I place that before you and plead with you as Moses, as Isaiah, as Jesus to arise and give your lives and call your name in Lord and let this shepherd lead you in life to green pastures and living waters. Let's stand and sing this.